The male imagination requires inspiration and our teachers need to work with, not against the kinetic energy of boys. And we need to bring back recess. And oh yeah. Savior at schools like to, to just get out of that classroom and play sports or run around or get beaten up or <laughs> all of the things that happens to boys. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandace.com. And from there, you can sign up for our Patreon account where you get early access to episodes and shout outs, plus some cool merch. Or you can click that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help me out a ton. I'm just getting started. Every dollar makes a difference. I recently started using Amura CBD and I am blown away by the quality. So they actually deliver flower CBD right to your door and it is the only heat not burn device that honors the integrity of the flower. So what that means is it doesn't get so hot, it's a lot more gentle on your lungs, you're not going to have a ton of crazy vapor coming out when you exhale. It's a much more enjoyable process with really quality CBD. And what I love is that they include these little card stocks in the box that break down the exact chemical makeup of the CBD. And they even note like the tasting notes, which for someone like me, and I love food and I love wine, I found to be very fun and helpful. So if you want to save 15%, you can go to amurracbd.com. That's O-M-U-R-A-C-B-D.com and use code Candice for 15% off. Again, that's amurracbd.com, code Candice. And I will include the affiliate link and the coupon code in the show notes. This week, I would like to give a shout out to Taylor Mims. Thank you so much for being a Patreon. I really appreciate your support. Now that we got all of those plugs out of the way, please help me welcome Greg Ellis. Yeah, I don't... We might cause a stir, but I don't think that you mind, given your Twitter account. Oh, gosh. I know. I've been watching um, some of your YouTube videos because I like to try to like feel like I know the person before, but especially because everything's so it's like virtual now. Like if we were in person, I feel like you could like riff a lot more naturally, but you like don't have that connection. So I try to get it myself prior and um, you have some pretty provocative titles for your YouTube. Like the one that I was just watching was um, Abuse Has No Gender. And it had like a really powerful clip in the beginning. It was, you know, this woman that was like berating this man in public and people were laughing. Was that real, like real footage, like yeah, by actors? Well, there were only two actors, the man and the woman. Yeah. Everyone else was general public. So what wow. I found compelling about that, I was, uh, I've been um, talking with uh, Mark Brooks who got an OBE for charity work and he runs the Mankind Initiative in England. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually shared it with me. And I thought it was just a powerful cold open to have because, and the abuse has no gender came from, uh, I've been talking with Johnny Depp and his team and his attorney wrote to me, the truth has no gender. And then the Depp heads who are the supporters of Johnny Depp changed it to abuse has no gender. And I think it speaks to that. And we can talk about it as well. The expendability of men in our society and how, you know, Men aren't important. Let's just smash the pet. Let's just smash father figures everywhere. The very idea of men is bad. Uh, so there's so much, there's so much, I urge everyone that's listening to watch this video 
to me, the most powerful part wasn't the actors. It was everyone reacting to the actors. Like you saw people laughing or just blatantly ignoring it. And the first thing I thought of is like, if this was reversed, this would be very different. Like if this man was berating this woman even half as hard as she was to him, like people would have intervened. They certainly wouldn't be laughing. And I feel like, so I come from like a pretty abused background. Like it was all in my family growing up um, on both ends, like dad and mom and, you know, boy, mom's boyfriends and all of this thing. And I mean, my mom in some cases gave it worse than she got. And that's not to like, you know, victim blame and blah, 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 blah. Like you, I feel like you always have to do those disclosures, but I've firsthand seen women at their worst. And to say that like men don't deserve protection or they don't deserve the same it's a little bit discouraging, especially as like a mom of a young boy. I'm like, I don't want him to grow up in this world. The, st the statistic that you shared was 40% of men are actually victims of victims of abuse. And most people would laugh at that. And it's not like a laughable matter. Um, so I, I loved that you did that video. Well, thank you. It, it was, mm -hmm. you know, the, it's basically two, for those who haven't seen it, it's basically two, uh, uh, a male and a female and the first half of the video is the is the man berating the woman and um, verbally assaulting her and then physically grabbing her and pushing her up against the fence near a park and you can see the public reaction is understandably people step in particularly women and they 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 call on the man to stop and they call him out and as they should and then the same scene is filmed, but with reverse, with the woman attacking the man. And the reactions, which are all natural from, from the general public, are just laughter and derision, like it's pathetic. How pathetic is the man? And so I think it's difficult sometimes to kind of pair that traditional chivalrous, stoic masculinity with this new kind of modern masculinity of we have to be more understanding and feeling and um, encourage as we should encourage women to go out and into the workplace and have equality and so uh, it was yeah it was very interesting um, seeing just the natural reaction I think that speaks to what how our uh, discourse our public discourse is right now with regards to men and how it's been for a few years in terms of smashing the patriarchy and all men bad and believe all women and um, I think we need men too in the conversation I think you know we need to start being a bit more positive and how we can talk to the, the, the greater characteristics of men, the more general characteristics, because there are some that I think men move physically towards violence quicker than women do. Mm -hmm. um, men, men are violent with their fists, whereas girls, women scratch with their nails. And there's, there are fundamental differences, but there's also individual differences. So yeah, that's what interests me. So... I was listening to one of your podcasts that you were a guest on and the one of the hosts was saying how brave she thought you were and like she almost didn't want to say like men's rights and like that's like a bad word. I'm like, what do you mean though? So we're like you mentioned, we're completely leaving out like 50% of the population because we just assume that you guys don't matter. Um, and that's been an acceptable narrative, especially in like this post Me Too era. So do you want to kind of give the listeners your background of what got you inspired to kind of start using your platform, start using your voice for what people would say is very noble and very brave and very cancelable, if that's even a word, um, to speak out for men's rights? 
Yeah, uh, I think much of what I've seen with, well, I've recently learned the term MRA, men's rights activists. I don't consider myself a men's rights activist, more of a, a gender equity advocate uh, for family, fatherhood, and men too. And um, I think, you know, as humans, we're, we're, we're sense makers and meaning seekers. And I think we have a crisis of meaning right now in society. And having looked at this through multiple lenses, I think the biggest the breakdown of the family is is the single biggest civilizational catastrophe we're facing today. I think the gravest indicator at the at the root of America's torn familial tapestry is marriage and family breakdown. Social ills and public policy stem from the health and well-being of relationships and family formation. Yet these days, our our society seems to undervalue the importance of the family unit. I read uh, David Brooks in the Atlantic his article last year where he said that the family unit was a mistake. Um, I see movements like BLM on their website, and they have, um, you know, they, they want to get rid of men in the family unit. And, um, and to talk about the significant role a father plays in the developing minds of particularly young boys, because I have two sons, um, and the recent such negative messaging about masculinity and the patriarchy and men in general being vilified. Um, it's no wonder that boys, are, our younger generation of boys and younger men are suffering at school and at play. And I think with our current education system failing our boys and having witnessed that firsthand and realizing just how, uh, for want of a better word, toxic the atmosphere and the environment is mm -hmm. to discuss this, I looked out there and I saw the few people that were discussing it were women. And the odd man who was, was canceled pretty quickly for, <laughs> for, for you know, demonizing mothers and women. And I, I don't think demonizing masculinity is the solution. I think that's the problem. And so, um, you know, I decided that I would, rather than just complaining to friends and talking about it in small groups and uh, having conversations wherever on the golf course or in the pub or at work, to just form a project that, that would be a, a kind of multimedia conversation and, and a lens to which I could talk through and maybe create some, some entertaining media, perhaps, mm -hmm. on what is a difficult subject and has many different uh, topics within it. So when you see these articles that are being written or these agendas that are you know, that were on the website for um, BLM, which is to abolish the nuclear family and, um, you know, smash the patriarch, all of these like catchy phrases. Do you think that people really want that or is it just like so radical that they want eyeballs? Because to me, like that's wildly radical to assume that, you know, women can just raise kids on their own and it's going to be the exact same as if they had a supportive partner. I think many of us don't take the time to actually invest. Many of us don't have the time to investigate and get better educated. I know when I first heard of that particular movement, uh, I decided rather than jumping on the bandwagon, and, and of course the cause is a good cause. Of course, Black Lives Matter. And it, it, to suggest that they don't is is ludicrous. And we need to call out people who don't believe that. But a movement sometimes can get hijacked along the way and mm -hmm. can be a little ignorant of what the main goals, the doctrine, the purposes of that movement are. So I, I think within me being an individual, it's up to me and incumbent upon me to explore and see what they're actually trying to change and, and what that is. And I just don't agree with that. I don't, I don't profess to be some kind of, you know, 
um, hardcore family values uh, champion that wanders around with posters saying, your family values, family values. But I do think when we look at society, there are certain bigger themes, macro themes that are affecting and the trickle down effect of how we're behaving, how we're feeling, our emotions, and taking the time to investigate that and form one's own opinion based on that, which is very difficult these days because mm -hmm. a lot of the news is, gosh, a lot of the news is so, um, it's propaganda, you know, it's either far left or it's far right. And and being more moderate means you, you're not going to scream as loudly as everyone else mm -hmm. and be heard in the screeching pack. So um, I just encourage people like I do myself is to just try and get more educated on subjects. If someone's written an article, who is it? Why have they written it? What are they trying to say? What's the nuance? Maybe leave a little room for doubt. Um, so, yeah. So in that article that was in The Atlantic and they were talking about getting rid of the traditional family, like what was what was the argument for that? Like what, what were the advantages that you were going to gain from that? Well, I think it was talking about David Brooks, maybe the point he was making when he said it was a mistake was to move more towards a more collective society where we could, and I get the, the idea behind that. Mm. We're actually not just, um, we're not just thinking about our nuclear family unit and who is under our household. It's like, maybe we can think about the homeless guy who lives down the street that we see every time we walk. Oh, okay. So I think that was the theme of it. But um, it just came at a time, and also I didn't agree with what he said. And there's the other thing. I can disagree with David Brooks. Doesn't mean he's a terrible person. He's actually <laughs> a writer, um, a way better than I could ever dream to be. But um, I think he, I think that that misses the point and is too simplistic to say, you know, I think we can do both. I think we can value um, marriage and family uh, and and our relationships. And when I say the fam family, it's the familial as well, the interpersonal relationships we mm -hmm. have. They're important because we all, we all, we all have had breakdowns in our friendships and relationships mm -hmm. and it's life. It's rupture and repair. It's push and pull and how we can be less reactive and more responsible and look at self rather than other, I think is important. Huge. Own responsibility and go, you know what? I accept the part that I played in this particular rupture. How can I repair it? How could I have done better? Tomorrow I vow to make better mistakes. Which mistake can I correct and try and improve on? That's one of your original quotes, right? Yeah, I, I did. A, I, I, I wrote a, a little pocket oracle of philosophical quotes called No Thing In Between. Um, and one of the quotes was tomorrow I vow to make better mistakes. I love that one. I've heard you say it a couple of times and I'm like, that's like such a simple and attainable goal. Like everyone can try to do like 1% improvements every day. Right. And it's just like not saying you're not going to make a mistake or that you're not going to fuck up. Like that's guaranteed. And that's, you know, you have to accept that, but it, hopefully it's not as bad as the one that you did yesterday. So I think that's really, really cool. Thank you. And if it's the same, you know, it's acknowledging as well, you know what, I'm going to keep making mistakes. I'm mm -hmm. flawed human. Mm -hmm. we, do, we do F up. We do, you know, mm -hmm. we transgress. And sometimes we do, we don't even know it. Mm -hmm. Right. Up with us and we go, oh, I didn't even know you're upset. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think it's really interesting. Just everyone's like reactions. Like you, you used to be able to say you did something that hurt my feelings and have a conversation about it, or you used to have opposing opinions and have a conversation about it. And now it's if you offended me, like we're mortal enemies, or if you don't align with me, 
exactly down the line. We're mortal enemies. And then I feel like with everything happening with COVID and you mentioned a lack of purpose, like you, all of these kind of interlace together. It's like the less we have going on for ourselves, the more we focus on other people, like especially if in times of disparity. So if we lost our jobs or we haven't seen loved ones rather than like look introspectively and try to get yourself out of like this dark place, you start looking at everything wrong in the world and other people. Um, do you think that there's a correlation between that and I guess like the decline of marriages or like the thought that you need a partner? Because I see like so many, especially women that are like, I'm this strong, independent woman and I don't need a man and I can do everything by myself. And I think some along that way, we're losing purpose and getting angrier, if that makes sense. I know that I kind of was drawn out on that. Um, but what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the devaluation of of men, of fathers, of boys, uh, particularly boys. I mean, that's an area that I think is uh, of of real interest for me. Um, th th that devaluation of the very idea of men is something that, um, you know, men have been boys and boys will become men. So how can we have this conversation and talk about these difficult subjects that do deal with things like you started off by talking about trauma and our, our, our family of origin and dysfunctional family systems. And, you know, I think everyone deals with a certain level of trauma mm -hmm. um, and trauma resides in the body and the body keeps the score and the organism is, is carrying that weight of trauma around and life is remembered backwards and lived forward. So you know, what is the definition of feeling and emotion and how can we make sense? We are sense makers of that trauma that we carry in those situations and maybe rewrite the script uh, that we tell ourselves or the predominant script, whether it's, you know, of our, of our childhoods or our past, if you will, there are many different versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when I think about boys, um, I think about our education system. You know, our education system is massively, I think it's failing children in general, but I particularly think it's failing boys. Um, and with that, an extra burden is placed on fathers, on men, on masculinity to pick up the slack um, with much more immediate remedial interventions to help stem our boy crisis. And that, that general lack of motivation being instilled in our younger generations of boys uh, by an educational system that's not paying much attention to what boys need is disturbing. And, you know, I look at the five factors driving this growing epidemic of unmotivated boys and underachieving young men, which are video games, prescription drugs, environmental toxins, the, devalu the devaluation of masculinity and teaching methods. And I mean, you look at teaching methods in our schools, boys need motivational curriculums. Um, and, when I look at the biggest proponent of why the, the, the people who are fighting the hardest to stop curriculums evolving or devolving curriculums to be less motivational for boys, it's, you know, frankly, radical, postmodern, uh, progressive feminists, toxic, some would say, um, not the true equality feminists. I mean, I've, I've had many fem uh, feminists on my show. Um, you know, there are some amazing women who've been fighting, you know, for equal um, rights for women for decades. Christina Hoff Summers, 
um, I think she's called the factual feminist, Camille Paglia. There's so many of them, but it's the it's the rabid strain of misandrist feminists, I think, that really don't want uh, boys to do well. And our, I think our younger generations of young men are failing because we're not mentoring, shepherding, guiding, teaching, and better educating our boys um, to become more responsible. So as a parent of two boys, because I have a one-year-old, so I'm, we're not even in the education system yet, and that's some territory that I'm very scared to navigate and very um, ignorant as well at this point, just because of lack of exposure. Like, what do you look for to make sure that they have a positive experience in school and that they're not falling behind? Because you do see that now in the universities, right? Like women are far surpassing and outperforming men as far as like attaining degrees. Um, and it was almost like we wanted to get women to a place where we could go to school, right? And we could go to university and that was awesome. But then there was like almost an overcorrection that happened. And I feel like we do that in a lot of areas, right? Like we tend to see something that went wrong and then we overcorrect. And then we need to kind of like steering a boat like you have to kind of take it easy to find like a nice steady way back like forward instead of like these hard turns that we're doing so if you have a young boy like how do you make sure that he succeeds like what do you look for in the education system gosh that's a really good question really good analogy too um you know gentling the the moves rather than the quick um uh, stormy turns uh Gosh, what do you look for? I don't know every, I remember when, what I looked for for my boys was a more structured school, I guess more like the British school that I didn't have. And I regret doing that, you know? Um, I think I think boys, I remember my six, uh, my, my youngest, when he was maybe six, he came home from school and I, I was checked in with my boys after school. And um, I said to him, you know, how was your day? And he said, I, f- I just feel like a bird trapped in a cage. I said, what do you mean, son? He said, well, you know, I want to be out playing. He's got all this, this kinetic energy. And he's being told to sit down, shut up, uh, behave. Well, when I was five or six, I didn't know how to behave. You know, someone just telling me to behave. And I think the bigger themes as well of, of um, with, with, at schools, I, I hear a lot of we, we, us telling children what to think rather than teaching them how to think. I think my eldest did uh, English lit class and he was given a book and he read the book and his interpretation of the book was different to his, his female teacher. Mm. And, but she graded him down like it was a terrible grade. And it was, it was a great book report. It was a really interesting interpretation of how he saw the story. And um, he went to speak because I've always empowered them to have a voice and speak up. So he went to speak to the teacher and he was just kind of chastised and made to feel devalued and that he got it wrong. And, and it's that rigid way of teaching that I think is, um, that is, is difficult. That's not to say that teachers don't have a, a hard time, but I think about books and the importance of reading. I mean, that's one thing I, I, I say to friends of mine who have little kids, keep your kids off devices as long as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, our device dependency, our chemical imbalances because of the dopamine hits. It's it's difficult because of peer pressure, but um, really try and focus as a parent on what is best, what is the best school for your kid rather than the best school for you or what's the fanciest or greatest schools. There are some real gems out there that may be on right at the top. And just go into the library if they have a library or what books are in the classroom. You'll get a real a quick education on what the school is all about. Um, and 
I think this, the, the school of life uh, says reading is a form of therapy, a way of processing our own thoughts uh, through the medium of others or the other's words and books make sense of our experience. And through simplification and empathy, they bring clarity to situations and states of mind that we ourselves are familiar with, yet perhaps thus far have lacked the means to analyze or make sense of. And, and in the best of them, we find ourselves made comprehensible for the first time. Uh, they speak not only to their own age, but to all ages. So I think boys, boys aren't being given boy-centric books at school, full stop. Boys will read if they're given materials that interest them. The male imagination requires inspiration. And our teachers need to work with, not against the kinetic energy of boys. And we need to bring back recess. And oh yeah. The savior at school is like to, to just get out of that classroom and play sports or run around or get beaten up or you know, all of the things that happens to boys. Mm -hmm. In recent years, we've lost 50% of boys' unstructured playtime. I heard I can't remember where I, I was listening to this, but I heard that the one of the main reasons they got rid of recess was because they were scared of abductions. Have you heard that? I haven't heard that, no. Yeah, it was like some dated, um, like back when it was like, it's it's 7 p.m. Do you know where your kids are? Did you ever see those commercials? I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Northern England in the in the 70s and 80s. And, and it was when, you know, our street, all of the parents knew each other. We were all playing as kids out on the street. And when it started to get dark, whatever that time was, it was, you know, time to go home. I mean, mm -hmm. time to go home. But I also, I remember when I was... I think I was maybe seven years old playing with the kids in the daytime. And this, this guy drove up in a car and he wanted directions. And I was just young and naive and I wanted to be helpful. And I remember, oh, it's down the street and you go turn right on the Kenilworth Road. And he said, oh, can you help me? Can you show me? I'll, I'll drop you back off. And I was sure. And before I thought about it, I got in the car with him. Oh, my God. <laughs> that two minutes. Because he was clearly not a good person. Right. Um, when he put his hand on my knee... And I'd asked him to get out of the car and I felt trapped. And I looked in the mirror and I'm driving away. And my friends are just standing there. That, so that is a worry, you know, um, it, it really is a genuine worry, but that's not a reason why we should stop boys having recess and playtime. And um, sure, if you, if, if you live in an area and that school is in an area where it's more prone to where the faculty think that there might be some abductions, fair enough, get some extra security, but I don't know if we want to be re reducing recess and playtime for boys because we're afraid of abductions. Um, yeah, and it's all fenced here too. For them, like I've never seen a school that didn't have a gate around it. So it had the proper administrators like watching the children, like you're supposed to be doing, and it shouldn't be a problem. And I think there's also probably a little bit of fear around like kids getting hurt, and they're like, well, what if someone roughhouses? Which is like it's normal kid behavior. And I think we tend to, over, it goes back to like overreacting and overcorrecting. So it's like, maybe they get into a little scuffle and then one parent wants the other one's expelled. And we kind of have to allow for 
just like human behavior. It's kind of, it's going to be like a bad analogy, but like, you know, at the dog parks, when you take your dog there and they have to like all the ones that are already there run up to the new dog and they're all sniffing and puffing up and barking. And they just have to like, kind of like sort it out themselves and then they can go play. I feel like it's kind of the same on like the recess court, right? Like the kids kind of have to like feel each other out and see where I belong in this herd. And that's totally okay. That's different than like bullying, right? It's very different. Um, but we have like this sense of just being so fragile and then we can't allow anything to happen. Like you can't have a snowball fight. You can't ha play dodgeball anymore. Like all of these things are banned. And I don't know, I feel like we're making like a bunch of um, just more fragile, less realistic adults when they grow up, right? Like the world's not easy. You talk about roughhousing. Roughhousing mm -hmm. is a vital experience for boys. And dads help navigate th this so the child learns healthy boundaries. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main gateways to learning healthy boundaries. Roughhousing engenders a, a sense of empathy to self and other and means the boy is much more likely to have friends and less likely to become depressed and withdrawn. Um, you know where the limit to that boundary is when you're roughhousing and someone gets hurt. Mm -hmm. Ow! Oh, <laughs> you know, you, you do... It's a rare boy who hears ah, and then goes in for the kill. <laughs> right. Then you might want to, you might want to look into that. Well, I mean, it's not as, it's not as common as one might think. Or right. maybe, I don't know. Um, you know, and dad style parenting as well. I mean, I, you know, I hear a lot about single parent families and deadbeat dads and uh, we have a legal system right now that is encouraging the, um, the breakdown of the family and, uh, you know, I had Heather McDonald, who who I think uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the U.S., a couple of years ago, called the greatest criminal thinking mind alive in America today. And I told her before she came on the show, she asked, what are we going to talk about? I said, family law, family law, family law, family law. And then I asked the first two questions I asked. It was, like, well, that's not my area of expertise. And I asked, I said, do you aware that there isn't a presumption of innocence in family law, that family law is not answerable to the Supreme Court? We have a draconian law, a judicial branch of the law, that basically is, there is no presumption of innocence. So if, quote unquote, the greatest criminal thinking mind alive in America today isn't aware and isn't prepared to talk about uh, why there isn't a presumption of innocence in family law, that, that, that for both parents, men and women, mothers and fathers, um, and why that is the case uh, might be because of the $60 billion a year industry oh, wow. that wants to continue and is incentivized to, to break down the family unit. Um, but anyway, getting back to, for a moment, roughhousing, yes, dad-style parenting, guiding boys through disciplined experience is a necessary component in balancing, this, balancing the psyche of young males and instills a learned sense of agency. Mm -hmm. You know, it helps the, the, the child self-integrate a more healthy value system. So um, I believe as a society, we really need to ask ourselves some difficult questions about the ever-diminishing valuation we're placing on fatherhood and family. This isn't um, uh, a, a one side against the other. It's not a zero-sum game. It can be a win-win. And mothers and fathers and brothers and daughters and sons and sisters and uncles, we're all invested in that, aren't we? Mm -hmm. No, you articulated that the best that I've heard when it comes to like rough and tumble play, because I've always known that it's important, especially for boys, but I never really understood how that translates. And like you, you really hit that on the head. One of my favorite stories, um, 
that my husband's told me about like when he was growing up with his dad so like they would always like have wrestling matches at night like it was just like part of their post to dinner routine and one of the times they were wrestling he was like he was must have been like five i think he said he was really young and he decided to bite his dad during the wrestling match so he just bit down really hard and his dad just screamed and all of a sudden he like said he looked back and he had this like utter look of fear in his face like what have i done and his dad was like we do not bite so it was like that hard boundary right it was like this is this is where i draw the line as far as like interaction and you learn a lot from each other in that moment and obviously it imprinted on him because now even in his late 30s he's still remembering this moment and as a fond one like it's a, a really funny story every time he like tells it um but yeah, I love that. I think it's so important. And I mean, I'm not going to do that. I mean, my baby's like one and I'm already like getting tired when I'm, you know, throwing him around and everything. It's like not my MO. Um, so, yeah, I've never heard it put that way, but I think that was great. Thank you. No, I, I mean, I, it makes me chuckle thinking about it. I'm sure it wasn't <laughs> or, uh, his dad at the time. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that yelp, that, ah, I mean, he learned there's the limit. Mm-hmm. Teachable uh, moment. Not right, the teachable moment. There's the limit, there's the boundary. Um, and also, I think when we're roughhousing and when we, we need to, I think with boys, with my sons, it was about postponement gratification as well. Like we have tasks to complete. How do we routinize through the tasks? Yes, I get it. I was bored at school. I didn't like school. There were, there were so many more teachers that didn't inspire me than did inspire me. But we have to kind of be responsible to our tasking and then when it's when we're done with it whatever the time is whatever the goal is or the tasks are then we can really enjoy ourselves mm-hmm. when, then we got our free time rather than the other way around which is procrastinate i'll have some fun i'll get to it later which is kind of what i did when i was born because <laughs> <laughs> i didn't have someone around to teach me all of that i had to mm-hmm. learn all of that um mm-hmm. self-taught you know as an autodidact mm-hmm. so we see the numbers and like the impact that it has to not have a, a father in the picture, right? And I don't understand when you see the impact negatively on mental health with these boys that turn into men and the rate of their dropout, dropping out of school and drug use, um, homelessness, like all of these things go through the roof if there's want like just a a mother in the house and then you have this industry that is feeding off of this so it's its purpose is to make sure that this happens like how do you even begin to tackle that like you have quite the undertaking that you're doing right like it is it is an undertaking we we talk about boys we talk about fathers we talk about family so boys you know when when the testosterone in boys is not channeled well they become destructive Mm-hmm. aren't present in the family home to instruct boys destruct testosterone is not channeled well boys be, uh, if testosterone is channeled well boys become constructive mm-hmm. so how do we how do we keep or at least give families and men and fathers and families in general and mothers a better chance at keeping the family unit together well that's a huge question i don't know the answer to that and i probably could posit some suggestions but given the time that we have uh, I, I looked at it and I thought, where is where where are we going wrong? And and I think family law is where we're going wrong. Mm-hmm. We have a branch of the legal system that basically is saying um, that's institutionalized as well. Not aside from the, the lack of presumption of innocence, um, if if criminals 
more get the presumption of innocence and more rights than than our children get because it's not just about fathers and mothers in family mm -hmm. there's no presumption of innocence and there's no shared equal parenting time etc cetera, etc cetera. it's our children's basic human rights that are being violated mm -hmm. and we're propagating a system that breaks up the family so I think there's many there's many aspects, Candice, to this. One, one, I, I talked recently about the great awakening of the 2010s. <laughs> she did an age of unreason, an era of cancel culture where victimhood became the new currency and its economy is booming. Um, I think we also live in a culture where people stand for what they hate, what they stand against, mm. what they love and stand for. And I love and stand for family, fatherhood, family units, uh, men too. Mothers, brothers, sisters, why all of that. I'm not, like I said, I'm not a men's rights activist. I'm more of a, a gender equity advocate for family, fatherhood, and men too, and children. I think kids matter. Children are vital. Uh, they don't have rights. They can't defend themselves and protect themselves if they don't have um, advocates uh, speaking for them and on their behalf. And the answer is not to smash the matriarchy or virtue signal toxic masculinity. I think it's empowering messages of tonic masculinity, positive masculinity. Not all men bad, but some men bad and some women bad, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Advocating fatherhood is not about diminishing motherhood. So the statistics on men, just, just to share a few with you, when I found these out, I was just blown away because it speaks to how expendable men and fathers become in our collective conversation in society. 80% of homeless are men. 93% uh, of workplace deaths are men. Men kill themselves 400% more than women. 98% of war fatalities are men. Um, today, one in three American kids live without their biological father in the home. Divorced men kill themselves eight times more than women every day in America. Ten divorced men kill themselves. And wow. that's not to even talk about the men who are trapped and fathers who are trapped and kids who are, and women and mothers who are trapped in the in the purgatory of family law where there is no uh, escape because of really one main lobbying group and that's the attorneys these the, these attorneys in family law who write the laws and the playbook for family law and they run the state bar associations and as i said it's nearly a 60 billion dollar a year industry so they are getting rich off over the deaths of and I, it's not an overstatement to say um they are encouraging the state and the legal system is kidnapping our children and murdering our families and 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 stealing our liberties and our freedoms and um i think there are probably a few root causes that i look to and that's divorce is one but suicide is another and social isolation is another so I talk about suicide skyrocketing. Uh, 800,000 people die by suicide every year, 132 suicides every day. That's one person every 40 seconds. And with the disparity in statistics of more men, that's not to say I devalue or it's less important that, that women are taking their own lives as well. But with those statistics in mind, male mental health is a real concern. And nothing t tells the story of what f fathers are facing more starkly than suicide statistics. And with the social isolation of COVID-19 and damaging, really damaging public health messages, corroding our collective well-being, with social distancing being encouraged, which is, it should be discouraged, mm -hmm. uh, it should be encouraging uh, social connectedness and talking about physical distancing. 
Um, I think families need lifelines and many fathers and, and children and mothers as well are on life support. So how we talk about that, very, those very difficult um, topics is, is vital. So when I um, first got interested in this space, I saw this like viral video. I'm sure you know, like Marilyn York. Have you yeah, heard of her? Marilyn came on The Respondent. I think she's episode nine of The Respondent. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I love her. I'm actually trying to get her on the podcast too. And her TED Talk was like shattering, like the just what she was talking about, like how men are treated, um, the like even down to the line of questioning in the courts. Like they'll ask, you know, who's the teacher? Like all of these things that, you know, the, the mom or the stay-at-home mom would know, but they're not asking like these deeper questions that are like, well, what's your kid's favorite superhero, right? Things that actually show that you do know and give a shit about your kid. Like the questions that they ask are almost designed to make the dad look like he's absentee or aloof or too interested in work. So that's why they're obviously better with the mom. And then the kids obviously don't get a say, right? Like when our, my parents were going through a divorce, like no one asked me what arrangement would suit me. I could tell you right now, it's not every other weekend or just the summers. Like that wasn't beneficial for me growing up. Um, yeah, I just, the whole thing kind of needs to be overturned. And then you were talking about, um, like a certain law that was like dads can get a felony for kidnapping kidnapping their kid and then a mom does it it's not a felony oh, if the mom yeah. does it well, and first I was like, of all, yeah, Mar yeah you, forgive me yeah marilyn york was i reached out to her because when i read about her and find out found out that she was a she owns a family law practice in nevada and she has a wonderful ted talk it's i think it's had a couple of million uh, views and she switched her uh, law firm to, uh, she employs, it's female only employed, and she only represents men because she saw the bias in family law and she saw how men were being treated and fathers were being treated. And I think the one you were referring to was patern paternity laws. Our ambivalence to the importance of fatherhood is probably best exemplified uh, by the instrument society has put in place to pre prevent men from taking on their rightful role and participating in fatherhood in the first place. Uh, and this is paternity laws. Uh, when you consider the fact that currently it's an accepted fixture of modern Western society and perfectly legal in just about every region in the Western uh, world for a mother to conceal from a biological father that he is uh, a father at all, a mother can give birth without even communicating a thing about it. It goes even further. A mother can knowingly or mistakenly drop another man's name onto the birth certificate. And even after, if after a few years a, a, a paternity test scientifically overturns the mistake or the lie, the biological father can't reverse this manufactured reality and gain his rightful status as the true father. He has no right to see a photo of his child, ever. Uh, and wow. a child grows up not knowing their biological father. That to me, when I found that out, when Marilyn and I talked about that, it was it it just floored me. It's like it's basically that's kidnapping. Um, um, if we if we're pushing for equality and we want true equality, and I'm about equity or equality of opportunity, mm -hmm. not equity or equality of outcome, and there is a difference. Um, we have to we have to be consistent and um, and of course there are exceptions to this but um, you know this this reality of 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 how the legal system um, 
favors favors the matriarch over the patriarch, uh, even in paternity laws, is is astonishing. And, and for me, it's vital that we at least begin to have this conversation and talk more about it. And, um, and you know, sometimes in some you talked about your situation about no one asked you. Well, sometimes sometimes we we do need to talk to our children. Uh, mm-hmm. The courts aren't equipped to really. Um, to really extract it's a very cold the courts the courts are there to to basically rule on law and i think we have to find ways to keep parents out of court out of the system of law particularly given that it's a system that doesn't have a presumption of innocence so how we do that when the mediation um you know the mediation industry in family law is corrupt as well they're all attorneys uh, and judges and retired judges and it's just a cash cow and we're putting money over kids and that's despicable and deplorable. And, um, you know, we really need to call it out. We need to call out when people are making great decisions. Uh, but we also need to call out when call out this system that puts money over families, well-being and particularly children's basic human rights to have access to both parents. And sometimes kids don't know mm-hmm. they're young, but sometimes kids don't know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. But frankly, it's the parents who should know what's best for them. Not one parent, and then we disregard the other. Both parents and how we find ways and models to, to help parents stay out of court, stay out of corrupt mediation uh, when it is corrupt because much of it is and it's money-making and find more cost-effective ways to, to tend to people's interpersonal relating skills when it gets to crisis point. And um, and maybe offer ways that that can either help people tend so that they stay together or break up uh, less uh, less um, uh, catastrophically, mm-hmm. and and keep the money in keep the money in the estate of the family, what little or what large amount there is, mm-hmm. rather than put it into the hands of the attorneys, who who are really frankly just propagating the system, incentivized to make money over kids and and people's tragedy and crisis and trauma. So in California, if you if you seek um, seek out a divorce, can you just get div- like how what's the process? Can you just get divorced? Well, I think if two people want to, if two people are communicating, go let's get divorced, let's get divorced. Uh, yeah, sure, you can you can decide to end your union, but ultimately you're, you can't, here's the thing that's paradoxical. Legally, you can't go to one law firm and mm-hmm. get to do it. You have to each have a separate attorney. Hmm. I wonder why that is because there's a zero sum game involved and immediately right away you have two legal buffers and two retainers and they're pitting people against each other. So, um, yeah, I think that anyone can anyone can end a union and it, find a way to stay out of the legal system. But at some point, there has to be a legal uh, paper that says you're divorced. So you're going to have to speak to someone uh, who is skilled in um, divorce and disillusionment of divorce. And in California, it's just it's it's such a it's such a cash cow industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where my parents got their divorce, and I. Feel like it was pretty fast, but I was so young, I don't know. In North Carolina, which is where I'm at now, um, once you file for separation, you have to wait 12 months before you can actually be divorced. 
Um, and I think, and I could be wrong, but I think the reason is, is because they're trying to fix the marriage. They want you to put in the effort um, before you're like, we're just done. Like they want it to be a little bit more difficult, which I think can be a very good thing, assuming that there's no like violence um, or anything, you know, crazy like that happening. But I was curious if it was a lot faster in other um, more like liberal states. I feel like it is. Yeah, maybe it is. In, in my experience, it isn't. And I admire the fact that, you know, let's have a cooling off period. But ultimately, what about those people who just want to be done and get on with their lives? Mm-hmm. You, know, you can bifurcate your, your possessions and you can do the legal the legal documents later. But um, I think we have to come up with better solutions in terms of how what models are we using and how are we going to pe- help people in the intermediate um to keep them out of court, to keep them out of uh, arbitration and mediation and, and this system of corruption that's just a money-making machine and say, look, you know, there's people like Stan Posthumus who has the uh, beyond win-win model of mediation. He, I think he was a mediator who was in the system and saw that it was all just att- you know, retired attorneys or retired judges and it was that kind of retirement fund mm. to make money off keeping churning people within mediation and churning people within the legal system and throwing them back in one to, one compartment to the next. So there are people out there who have been working at this, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bring together a kind of coalition and a movement uh, of people uh, with a view to eventually uh, getting policy change. And really, for me, the biggest, the biggest, there are so many issues to tackle, you know, parental alienation, 50-50 shared parenting, which we could talk about, um, why that hasn't been pushed through is astonishing. But ultimately, the, the top tier is the presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. How we don't have a presumption of innocence in family law um, is is stunning to me. Um, and the equal shared parenting, you know, there was, there's been moves for the last 20, 20 plus years, I've found out, to get a default shared parenting that says, it starts from, it's a starting point that says 50-50. So if there's any disagreement, there's no mudslinging. It's just, it's 50-50. And that's honoring the basic ch- and if children's human rights. And if one parent wants to have more sh- parenting time than the other or feels like the other parent doesn't deserve as much as them, they have to make the argument in court. A judge will listen and, you know, they'll be afforded more parenting time. Um, but we don't have that. We so have. why is that why is that not the standard like wh- how did we get to a place where because i know initially it was the mom always gets the kid like that was just expected and decided so like where did that come from and how can we have it evolved to more modern times where both parents need to be present yeah i think in, in 90 uh, what was it 1968 percent of children lived in a home with only their biological mother um and now today more than 20 uh, by like, with only their biology now more than only 20 there were more than 23 percent who do so the 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 no-fault divorce laws that came in the 70s that has a lot to do with it it was well-intentioned but as is usually the case the legal system um needs reformation or it needs a little bit of tending to and it needs to evolve and be improved um and and there are there are aspects to this system that that are just so corrupt. I mean, my book, which is coming out later this year, the respondent, I you know, I expose the cartel of family law, 
uh, I call it family law war because it is a war of family. It's family law and the family system. When when people get divorced, the kids, you know, it's it's two families from the mother and father who came together. And if there is disillusion and and an alienation or an erasure of a parent, then that parent's entire family of origin can be alienated to what is oftentimes, you know, their, their nieces, uh, nephews, uh, grandchildren. And that's extremely painful and we're just compounding the trauma. But when I looked at the default shared parenting, um, the 50-50 presum uh, presumption of baseline for shared parenting, it's been tried in multiple states. And um, the only state that I am aware of that it's passed in is Kentucky. And that was passed there because it's apparently illegal for divorce lawyer lobby, uh, lobby groups of family law attorneys to lobby uh, state legislatures. So they weren't able to buy off uh, keeping the status quo as is and uh, the, the horrific situation that's going on for families. Everywhere else, I mean, Arizona, they passed something I think a couple of years ago in their legislature, but it said, um, I think the wording was maximum. So um, in time, and it didn't take long before the attorneys worked their way around how to get around the what does maximum even mean? Maximum could mean a second if we're dealing in milliseconds, or it could mean 10 years if we're dealing with a decade. So how we, how we bring this to the, these subjects to light in the media, but also how the laws are worded, how the bills are worded, and the specific legalese that's used is so vital because we can fix this. We can we can come together. I don't. I think this is a universal issue. I haven't heard someone put an argument yet that I go, "Oh my God, yes, you're right." There's, that's why we shouldn't do this <laughs> in every conceivable way. I was speaking with uh, someone who's been working in this field for the last thirty years the other day, and talking about philanthropy and giving to good causes. And he said, "Forget about children's hospitals. Forget about cancer charities. Forget about breast cancer. Forget about all of it." Everything has to go into fixing family law, because if we fix that, then the residual effect of psychological and physical um, well-being will be just exponentially improved uh, on so many levels. And financially, the healthcare system, the insurance, I mean, it just goes on. So um, I don't think that's a crazy statement. So you mentioned and you've mentioned this in other podcasts, The Body Keeps Score, which I've read um, a while ago. And I'm like, I thought it was really cool that you love that book. But for people that haven't read it, essentially, it's like these stressors and these traumas can actually show up as like physical health ailments, right? Um, and even I can't remember if it was that book or another one, but even like through your lineage, right? So like through epigenetics, so traumas that your mother has gone through also have an impact on you and your physical being. And I know some people sound think that this sounds woo-woo, but there's a lot of like serious science behind it. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Hmm? Woo-woo, like mysticism or like like too spiritual or magical. Yeah, like not not scientific-based, but there actually is a lot of science going behind this. Um, so if you alleviate this massive stressor of these parents, essentially, like you said, going to war, that's going to have a huge ripple effect even down the line. So I think that's really cool. And I don't know if anyone's ever made that connection. Well, you just did. And, and I appreciate it because, you know, the woo woo in the <laughs> or 
the right brain, as I call it, the mysticism. Like, I remember seeing um, Serene McGilchrist gave this talk about the left brain hemisphere and the right brain hemisphere. And that impacted me having, having done some work specifically in areas of learning about shame and vulnerability and intimacy and dependency and um, love and interpersonal relating and uh, all of those and, and psychology and neuroscience and affect theory. And his speech, his talk really resonated with me because he talks about in a way how, and Esther Perel as well, um, talks about the left and right brain. He talks about the left brain being, cl it closes down to a certainty. So the left brain is that routinizing part of our mind that it's the knowing thinking mind, the cognitive space that wants consistency and continually and consistently closes down to a certainty. And then he talked about the right brain or the body brain as I call it and the right brain hemisphere, which he's, he's kind of one of those rebel maverick um, uh, scientists who studied this for years and was kind of cast out from the psychological community because his ideas were seen to be crazy and nuts and against the norm. And I love people like that. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how the right brain opens up to possibilities and it's analogous and it wants adventure and desire. And I think that speaks to um, how the right brain, the body brain tends to the entire organism. And it's not the thinking brain because too many times we think we're trying, we try and think our way out of, out of situations and problems and, and we can close down to certainties continually, but how do we keep this body brain that tends to the organism? Um, how do we pay attention to what the body's trying to tell us uh, with the felt senses and soma significance and, moving meditation and all of those things that I, you know, the woo-woo stuff <laughs> I adore and love and are so important, arguably not just as important, more important, because that will help us self-regulate well-being internally. Um, and we have tools that are at our disposal that don't require us spending money to help regulate our wellness or our mind wellness. We talk about mindfulness sometimes. I don't, I don't um, align with that. Filling the mind is with what? What are we filling the mind with mind wellness? We want to be well in the mind. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't talked much about the woo-woo um, through my work, but, but that's certainly just as important, if not more important, is understanding one's own body one's own behavior patterns, one's own character traits, how one um, moves through the world and further extends presence, because that's really what we're all trying to do is further extend our presence. Yeah, and I think if you spend a lot of time in that area, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get so like vindictive and maniacal when you're in these transactions, like if you're in the middle of a divorce, if you've put in that work to yourself and you find yourself like, whether it's like spiritually or you just have a meditation practice, you just like have this sense of like being that's more than, it's gonna be a lot harder to reside in that place of like anger. So I think that's where a lot of it goes wrong, right? Is like someone did something wrong and now it's like me versus him. And there's only one victor in this and no one's thinking about the kids. It's just like the two parents going at it. And then you have the, you know, people in the crowd, like the stands, which are your attorneys that are just like egging both parties on. So it's like, you have to kind of be predispositioned to not react. So like, 
with your emotions in a negative way so that you can just kind of accept what is your new situation and amicably um, divorce if that's even possible. I know some people have had good divorces, but more often than not, you hear of these like horror stories. So it's like, how do you, how do you get to a place where you're sound enough that if this does happen, because right now I think the divorce rate's like 50%, right? It's, it's pretty high. It's higher than that. And higher that, than that. Yeah. And the astonishing, and I think it is possible to do it amicably, but it's rare and it's exceedingly rare. And I would say impossible to do within the system, mm. out of at least costing a, a lot of money is one of the areas that I've been looking at is false allegations of domestic violence. And I think it's upwards of 82% of allegations of domestic abuse and domestic violence allegations are false. Wow. Think about that. If you actually sit and think about that, and then you think about the device that our society has to actually immediately tend to that. If law enforcement is detached, um, sorry, dispatched to a situation, a call of domestic violence. What does what do those police officers do in that particular situation? They can't arrest anyone unless they have evidence of a crime. Um, you know, there's the presumption of innocence. So they can detain someone. Usually it's the, the father or the man who's detained and, and removed from the family home. Then what I call the silver bullet of family law is used, which is the restraining order, the TRO or the DVRO or the EPO, the Temporary Restraining Order Emergency Protection Order. And eight, upwards of 80% of this is based on a false allegation. So we have weaponized um, we have weaponized women to be able to completely ruin men in those particular situations using law enforcement, using uh, the system that's now psychologically conditioned in many regards to believe that all men are bad and fathers are bad and dead beat dads rather than dead broke dads. That's a whole other subject. And of course, we're not going to talk about it. Even me saying it now with you, I can just hear people say, you know, women in danger need to be protected. It is wrong, but the people, the women and the people and men sometimes, but mm -hmm. mainly women, the mothers and women who are, who are um, calling in false allegations of domestic violence are an affront to the real victims of domestic violence. And that's abhorrent. It's disgusting. And um, I, don't, I don't know any other way to put it. I don't like to be kind of hyperbolic with my rhetoric, but it's despicable um the the people that that amount of people and you see when 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 we then find out we look at the two main lobbying groups who don't want any of the laws to change in family law of course we understand that um the divorce lo lobby a uh, divorce lawyer industry lobbying group is is one and we get why because it's a huge money making industry but the other one is domestic violence support groups for women they who get their major amounts of funding millions and millions of dollars for ramping up the statistics that all men are violent and they focus on the worst case scenarios. And there are violent men out there. There are mm -hmm. some horrible, horrific situations. But they want the status quo rather than the law to change, to afford a more equitable playing field, to allow our children, boys and girls, to have fathers in their lives. And that's really tragic that we have 
people like that, and back to the point we talked about originally, I think was this rabid strain of not true equality feminism, but radical third or fourth wave feminists, if you want to call it that, who really just hate men and don't um, don't want women to be mothers. Maybe they don't value um, the matriarch. Maybe they see all women going out into the workspace and being successful and credentialing. And, and I think there is a tremendous value in, there are some amazing women I know who are mothers who work tirelessly at home at making sense of homes and making them run like clockwork. And we need to value that a little bit more, I think. I think so too. It's almost nowadays, it's almost shameful, shameful. If you say that you're a stay at home mom, they're like, Oh, well, you just gave up on yourself. And you're like, it couldn't be further from the the truth. I mean, I work from home. So I wouldn't say I'm a stay at home mom because I have other businesses, but I have the luxury of being able to do most of my stuff like in the house. And it's hard like we we have help we have help most of the week and it's still really difficult so to kind of like write these women off and say that they took an easy way out i think is very misguided and i think those women that are the radical feminists and it seems that their agenda is to get more women to say that they're not going to be a mom or they're not going to get married and you know they're going to live this very ambitious career life I think there's a lot of fear there something inside of them because you wouldn't be so aggressive with it and you wouldn't be pushing that ideology onto other people if there's something if there wasn't something unchecked within yourself right because if you're at peace with your decision you don't react that way like you react that way if there's something like un undiscovered if you will I don't know how to if I'm wording it right but Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear when you see like those very angry feminists. And I think when you tell women that they can't be or shouldn't be moms and that they shouldn't be wives, this is going to probably get me into trouble. But I think you're taking away purpose. I think you're taking away purpose from women. And like we're biologically wired to, and this is for men and women, to want to be married, to want to have like a committed relationship, right? Like that's... I want like security from that saber toothed tiger and this man wants to be able to procreate. Like it's, it's mutually beneficial. Right. And we, as women are nurturing, like we are predispositioned to be the caregivers. And when you start taking these things that for like hundreds of thousands of years, we have been wired to do and saying not anymore, you lose purpose. And I think that's why you see so many women that are depressed and, and not happy in these careers that they thought they wanted, right? Like you see, who was it? Um, I want to say it was the creator of Sex in the City. And she threw herself into her work and she's obviously wildly successful, but she did an article and I think she's 60 now saying that she regrets not having a family. She has all of this wealth, all of this fame. And the one thing that she was told she didn't need is the thing that she now can't have. You can't go back in time, right? Like, We're not that far with science. You can't get pregnant at 60 um, or at least successfully, really. So, again, I think it's going to piss some people off. But I do think when you tell people that being a mom isn't important or being a wife isn't important, you lose purpose. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the good points. I think, you know, everyone's individual situation is different. Mm -hmm. And 
yes, there is that kind of archetypal drive and the stereotypical man, woman, hunter gatherer, but there are things that that do make sense that 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 are uh, we do carry with us. And if a woman, if an if if an individual woman wants to work and dedicate herself to a career, go for it. Mm-hmm. And if an individual man wants to stay at home and be a stay at home dad, great, go for it. What I'm saying is. Let's not vilify or let's not forget that let, that one of the greatest, uh, I would say, one of the greatest jobs on earth is to be a parent. And that's a full-time job. And when I say that, I mean, even at work, you're not going to not think about the well-being of your, pa- your, your kids if there's an issue with school or a call comes in, it's going to interrupt a meeting. And the, the home, I think over here in America, it's called a homemaker. Mm-hmm. You know, a homemaker. What I mean, that's a that uh, that's a meaningful role, if you will, even if, you, if we're not allowed to call it a job by the speech police these days. <laughs> um, and 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 let's champion more of that. And if it weren't for those, look, I mean, when I was when I was married, my wife, I would say, um, I wanted her to stay at home. Uh, I'm honest. I wanted her to have more quality time with the kids. She wanted to go out and work. And uh, although I didn't want her to go out and work, I supported her in that decision. We had a conversation. I said, you know what? I'm behind you. If that's what you want to do, great. I, I wanted to bring each day. I, I think that family dinner, family mealtime is important as much as possible. She, didn't, she wasn't interested in that. She didn't like coming together for family. I'm like, I'm like, well, the breaking bread, the coming together at least once a day. If you can't do it at breakfast or lunch because of time commitments and schedule, Let's try it uh, for dinner. And and in, in England, we have a tradition of Sunday roast dinner where the mm-hmm. family together on a Sunday and we all have a nice bang-up Sunday roast dinner, which is yummy. And I can still smell my mom's gravy and crispy roast potatoes right now. Um, but however someone wants to live their life, however your union is made and two people decide to move forward, I think there has to be a little flexibility. But you can look back and go, oh, gosh, what was all... I remember a study about they interviewed many very wealthy people at the end of their life. And, you know, to your point about the lady who, you know, was the showrunner of Creative Sex and Sex, many people thought the same. It was, you know, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. I wish I'd been with my family more. I wish I'd nurtured my relationships within my family and my friends and really found a way to enjoy um, what I had uh, rather than making more of the money and wealth and growing and all the rest of that, the, the portfolio of assets. There's something that we all have, we all have an equal value and that's the ability to connect and mm-hmm. positive and um, share a little bit of love and intimacy. I mean, I think you talked recently about intimacy, knowing and being known. How can I be more known by another and how can I know myself more? And only if I know myself, I think Socrates said, know thyself. Can I first aid thyself, get better known by myself? Can I really be known by another? And that speaks to love. Mm. You know, we can be with someone for decades and decades and, and physically close to them and so emotionally distant we can feel from them um, that it can be excruciatingly painful, uh, psychologically speaking. And, um, and particularly when people are carrying trauma and particularly when our younger generations of kids, you and I, Candice, have been kids and we still have our kid versions of ourselves mm-hmm. that we remember at times 
and um, you, you, I think a, what a wonderful journey that you're on with a one-year-old um, to start out that amazing journey of, I think part of the part, one of the hardest parts of the, probably the primary task of being a parent is to nurture uh, because those kids are dependent on us for their needs, you know, housing, clothing, food, um, but how we separate. And it's as much the separation eventually with our children, how that they can be self, fully self-actualized, fully self-reliant uh, individuals have, who have their own agency. And um, the bond that one has with our kids will never be broken. Uh, the bond with a parent can never be broken. It can be torn somewhat. Um, and I think it begins and ends with how we repair that tear up, up here in the brain um, of that trauma from our youth. Oh man, that was so beautiful. Yeah, that was really great. I think, I think you, you showed the importance when you brought up like your, like you still can taste your mom's like sweet potato or crispy potatoes and gravy, like mealtime is so important. And these tiny moments that you dedicate to your family together are so important. And you don't know which ones are going to stick forever as, as we grow older, right? Like these little parenting moments and I mean, there, I still have some with my dad, even though I haven't, I haven't spoken to him in, you know, well over a decade. Um, the divorce thing ended up kind of rippling down to the kids and the kids were the ones that suffered the consequence of that, which I think is, you know, that's pretty normal, unfortunately. Um, but you don't realize how important these little moments are. So I think it's really important to try to strive for balance. I think it's like a stoic quote or um, – that's like, you can't, balance is always striving for balance. It's never actually attaining balance. Mm. So I think it's important that you don't underestimate the little moments that you have and that for everyone listening, that you're constantly doing the, the work internally. So when these like big volatile moments do happen in some area of your life, then you can act in a respectful way, in a respectable way and not look back and be like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. I wish that I had handled that with more grace um, so that we can start treating each other with more love and respect, even when we disagree, even when we're ending a relationship and being able to take the negativity out of it. Um, yeah, I think there's what there's there's something I like to say, no one is to blame, no one is at fault. I don't like those two words, fault and blame. No mm -hmm. one is to blame, no one is at fault. It's everyone's responsibility. And to your point about the gravy and the sensed memory um, and those, those small pockets of memories, I remember reading, I think it's Clay Routledge, who's a professor, um, professional scientist at, I think, the University of it's a university in North Dakota, but he talks about a nostalgic savoring. And being, being, as in human being, of undisputed origin, how are nostalgic memories created? So if we consider savoring as one process involved in the genesis of nostalgia and our remembering, whereas nostalgia refers to an emotional reflection upon past experiences, savoring is a process in which individuals deeply attend to and consciously capture a present experience for subsequent reflection. Thus, having savored an experience, we may increase the likelihood that it will later be reflected upon 
nostalgically and positively nostalgically. And that fascinates me in terms of uh, when I look at feelings and emotions and memories, uh, I often say, you know, um, uh, emotions are feelings with memories attached. And by that, I mean, feelings don't come up in the present. Emotions come up in the present based on feelings outside of consci consciousness that have emotional uh, residue that captures up to us with, with memories from the past. So moments, scripts, uh, that situation you remembered, mine with the gravy, I can think about unwrapping a Christmas gift one year and the sound of the, the crackling wrapping paper and the excitement and the smell of the gift and the box. And it immediately transports me back to that time. And that can be incredibly positive and powerful. And it can also be extremely negative. If I'm yelled at when I'm eight years old for not time, like knowing how to tie my shoelaces and we're going to be late, we're going to, we're going to be late, we're going to be. Late. And then 40, 30, 20 years later, my boss is yelling at me because I haven't got the paperwork in quickly enough. And that's so that's feeling with the memory attached from that seven-year-old, eight-year-old time and come up when I'm 38 and the emotions come up in the present based on the feelings attached to the memory from the past. So I'm fascinated by all what you would call, and I love the word woo-woo, so I'm just going to keep <laughs> um, all, all of that, which is the, the mystery of my story, his story, her story, our story, and how we can maybe um, rewrite some of those worse memories and experiences not into into positive ones but maybe we can write them less traumatic and less dramatic and less horrific so that we can become better sense makers and a little bit more enlightened as to our personal stories um yeah well, I love the work that you're doing. I can't wait for your book to come out. Um, do you want to tell the listeners anything that you're working on, how they can follow you, how they can support you, um, and any ventures that are that are on their way? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, well, right now, the show, uh, The Respondent, is a video podcast series, a multimedia conversation on modern masculinity. And that resides on YouTube. And I do live stream simulcasts, which go out on YouTube Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, realgregellis.com is the current website where much of the content, most of the content is stored. The book will be out later this year, um, probably be on it. We're about to set the exact date, but I'm thinking it's gonna be in about four months time, but stay tuned. You can sign up for notifications about the book, at, uh, my website, realgregellis.com. Therespondent.com, which is named after the show and the book, um, that will be going live in two to three weeks time. And um, that will be the main repository for all of the information to do with the video podcast, uh, to do with the book, the people who are involved in the book, um, of which there are some really amazing people, which I'm super excited about to announce. And um, yeah, just uh, it'll be a place as well, I think a hub for people to come and learn and get more information and get involved in the conversation and discussion. And um, we, we kind of have a growing movement of people right now. There are people coming on board that have been trying to change this, this policy, this law for a long time, and they've been reaching out as well as other supporters. So if people want to get involved, uh, they can reach out as well. The email is hello at monkeytoes.me. 
um, let us know what um, what you're particularly interested in helping with and what your skill set might be. And, uh, you know, very welcome. Uh, we would love to hear from people. Um, so, yeah, that's really it. Um, really just ramping up to get the book out, to get more shows out, uh, and um, keep connecting with marvelous people like yourself, Candice. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Um, you have some exciting stuff on the way. Thank you very much. I wish you all the best as well. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you and being on your show. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have the time, please rate and review, and you can always hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. I hope to have you back.